Michael Ostrunk here with Colonel Douglas McGregor, retired Army. He's a decorated combat veteran with a Ph.D. in international relations from the University of Virginia. Welcome back, Doug. Happy to be here. So it's, uh, it's uh, June of 2016. The election cycle we're in the midst of, it's, it's an interesting year. Uh, you've done a lot of reading, a lot of writing. You have a couple books out and a new book coming out in the summertime. Um, thinking about a military strategy. So, if you had the ear of the next president, uh, I have two questions. If you had the ear of the next president, what would you tell him or her in terms of how they should think about the United States military, the threats that we face, and also the, the threats that are now being hyped um, amongst the so-called experts are China, Russia, Iran, ISIS, and cyber. What are your thoughts on that, and then also what might you tell the next president? Well, the first thing I would urge the, the next president to do is to recognize that uh, he or she lives in the 21st century, not in the 20th. That the world has in fact changed rather profoundly over the last hundred plus years. You might want to look at the world through a different lens. Instead of assuming that things that happen around the world uh, that involve violence of one type or another or dysfunctionality uh, are important to us, uh, step back and consider the possibility that many of these things are normal in the course of human history. And we should see the so-called threats that are hyped widely uh, as manifestations of some things that have been there for a very long time. Now, let's look, for instance, at Russia. Russia has menaced the West. When I say the West, I'm talking about the people of Eastern and Central Europe and Northern Europe. Uh, easily for 350 years, off and on. And notice I said menaced. I didn't say always presented an existential military threat. I said menaced. Uh, why menace? Why instead of the other? Because Russia is, is an opportunistic state in the sense that it moves into areas of weakness. It exploits weakness where it finds it to increase its uh, perimeter, to extend its control, its influence, because in the Russian mind, uh, if you can control your periphery, you can protect your state. That's a very old mindset that probably should change, but unfortunately, there is a great deal of evidence that Mr. Putin doesn't think very differently from the czars of the 19th century. That doesn't mean you have to go to war with Russia, but it does mean that you have to be prudent. And the people that live on Russia's periphery need to be prudent. That means, on the one hand, it pays to be militarily strong, but on the other hand, it also pays to be diplomatically adroit. Mm. If you can steer away from what you think is an inevitable confrontation, then you should do so, because there's nothing, nothing inevitable about war with Russia. Russia has a huge border, and most of the states on its periphery are, frankly, hostile to mm. Russia. So it's not a question of Russia simply threatening people in the Baltic littoral. Russia's got serious problems in the Caucasus, serious problems in Central Asia, serious problems with Pakistan, serious problems with Mongolia and China, serious problems in Northeast Asia with Japan. So the notion that Russia is exclusively focused on NATO and views NATO as this tremendous threat I think is a bit misleading. In truth, I think the Russians know that NATO is hopelessly dysfunctional, incapable of unity, and frankly presents no real threat to Russia. But it 
pays inside Russia to hype the NATO threat because it helps to justify internal measures that keep people like Putin in power. Wow. Okay, so you just kind of uh, dispelled the myth of Russia as a threat to the United States. Um, another country that's that's uh, you know, hyped as a threat is China. Speak to China as a quote-unquote threat to the United well, States. China is a very interesting case. It's very different from Russia. China has no long history of military achievement or military power to its credit. In contrast to the Russians, who from time to time have fielded some of the world's greatest armed forces, certainly its greatest armies, China never has. China, more often than not over the last thousand years, has been the victim of external invasion and conquest. In fact, I think it was Eddie Lutwak who pointed out that in the last 1,100 years, China has for all but 300 of those 1,100 years been ruled by foreigners. Hmm. In fact, when the Manchu dynasty fell, the attitude in China was that we're finally rid of the Manchus, who after all were originally Mongols. Then, of course, they were also dealing with Europeans who took advantage of China's weakness and established footholds all along its periphery. Then subsequently became the victims of Japanese invasion, which was frankly unprovoked and unnecessary as the Japanese discovered, much to their dismay, much as the Germans discovered after they invaded Russia, that they had walked into an enormous tar pit. There was nothing there for them other than Chinese, which they frankly did not want. Uh, so this experience has shaped the Chinese mentality, and the great achievement of the Communist Party in China has been to unify it, to make it into one country, as much as China can ever be one country. Many people who've spent many, many years in China will tell you that China is probably seven different nations. Uh, it is not absolutely homogenous in the sense that we think of it in the United States by any means. But the notion that China, given its internal diversity, the size of the population, the enormous difficulty of holding this together, over a billion people spread across uh, this continent, uh, is going to be the basis or foundation for aggressive external military expansion is ludicrous nonsense. What we do see a lot of evidence for is that the Chinese are, given their history, more than just paranoid about protecting what they've got. And so the Chinese are very worried about the South China Sea because the South China Sea was essentially turned into a British lake by the Royal Navy. And China's historic access to the South China Sea, its ability to trade, its ability to move goods and services across that sea, was virtually stopped by the Royal Navy. And the Royal Navy then, of course, was instrumental in introducing opium in, in vast quantities, did enormous damage to the Chinese nation. At the same time, they had the Taipei Rebellion, which involved the loss of perhaps 40, 50 million Chinese at least, all as a consequence of someone who had adopted Christianity and declared himself the reincarnation of Jesus Christ, which helps people to understand that there is more than a little fear of uh, foreign religions and their capacity to inspire tremendous violence and division. You put all of those things together and you look at the investments on the military side, understand, first of all, they're much more heavily invested in internal security than they are in external military power. Secondly, the external focus is largely defensive. Their navy is what we call a fortress navy. It's, it's a reinforced coast guard that's not designed to conquer anything overseas as much as it is to hold the enemy at bay. By the way, it's also not very good. 
uh, and the Chinese are very afraid to send any of their new nuclear submarines any great distance from China for fear that they will sink. People don't understand that it takes a very long time to develop the kind of infrastructure along with the human capital to man it that we have in the United States and in the West, or for that matter in Russia. So China is not a direct threat to us, and if we don't challenge the Chinese over things that frankly don't make any difference to us, such as rocks and sand islands in the South China Sea where we have no real interest, uh, we won't have any trouble with the Chinese. Again, people don't seem to understand the Chinese have never stopped a single commercial vessel. Hmm. So they're not interested in, in halting freedom of navigation by any means. But this air identification zone is not a zone that says if you fly through it we shoot you down. It's a zone where the Chinese are asking you to identify yourself. By the way, our air identification zone from Alaska into the Pacific and from California into the Pacific makes China's air identification zone look small by comparison in the South China Sea. So again, it's a, it's a bit hypocritical of us to criticize the Chinese for doing something that we've done for a very long time across the Pacific and the Atlantic. Again, an air identification zone means that you simply announce who you are, that you're coming through. So I, I don't think there is any reason for conflict between us and China militarily. On the other hand, economically, that's another matter. And our trade agreements with all of our friends and, and competitors in Asia are terrible. I've spent too much time in Northeast Asia not to have figured out, thanks to some tutoring by Koreans and Japanese, that our trade arrangements with them are very stupid. And they date back to the Cold War when we were interested in access to bases, which frankly we don't need anymore. And these countries are extremely rich and quite capable of defending themselves. We're, we're getting into a, into a situation in Asia right now where, frankly, uh, the Japanese are anxious to see conflict between us and China because they see China as a business competitor. They would like to see China pushed out of Southeast Asia and back behind its borders economically. We don't need to be involved in that. Uh, let the, the people in the region who want to compete, compete, but we should stand neutral on these matters. Let, let me, you brought up our, our, our alliances, Korea, Japan. Let's we'll, we'll speak to them a little bit. Um, so would you then withdraw U.S. forces from Korea? Would you then withdraw U.S. forces from Japan? Uh, first of all, I would, talk, first of all I would sit down and talk with those states uh, and uh, explore the withdrawal of our ground forces getting the Marines out of Okinawa, getting the Army off the peninsula. Uh, f quite frankly, neither the U.S. Army on the Korean Peninsula nor the Marines in Okinawa have any real strategic military value that would justify keeping them there. On a tripwire? Well, that, that presupposes that extended deterrence is real and works. Mm -hmm. Uh, extended deterrence always meant that if one Kore North Korean soldier or Chinese soldier steps across the demilitarized zone or, or a Chinese vessel ends up in conflict with a Japanese vessel at sea, then we would automatically prepare our nuclear arsenal for use against the Chinese or the North Koreans. Actually speaking, that receded into the background in the 1960s because the Europeans figured out that we were not going to put American cities and millions of Americans at risk if the Soviets attacked. Mm. Uh, this was the called flexible response, where we started to develop conventional military power to, to counter the Russians, because we knew that going to the nuclear level would be unacceptably destructive. If you look at current 
not not what is attributed to Putin, but you look at real Russian military doctrine, it's entirely defensive and it takes the same position. That unless you're invading Russia proper and threatening the Russian state directly with destruction, as it was in 1941, they don't plan to use nuclear weapons. Uh, we shouldn't plan to do so either, and frankly, I don't think anybody believes that we would. So under those circumstances, I think getting our ground forces out makes sense. We ought to try and get something for it, though, if we're going to leave. And then secondly, we can revisit the wisdom of all this forward engagement with air and naval power. You know, forward engagement gets a lot of attention uh, in Washington. It justifies enormous expenditures of money. No one ever bothers to point out that we had perhaps more ground forces, air forces, and naval forces in the eastern Mediterranean, in the Gulf, Persian Gulf, and the Red Sea than ever in our history. Hundreds of thousands of people, and it made absolutely no difference to Iran's advance in Iraq, its, its dominance of Iraq. It made no difference to the Muslim Brotherhood's takeover in Egypt. It made no difference to this thing we call the Arab Spring. So the real issue I think that we need to deal with is just how valuable and important is this forward engagement. In fact, you could make a good argument in many cases that we as Americans and our country are most popular where we have no military. Hmm. Well, uh, okay, let's assume for the moment you remove the ground forces, um, you possibly remove the forward engagement of the naval and air forces. Would you still do uh, training exercises with our partner countries or allied countries? I, I think so. It depends, it depends on the circumstances. I mean, first of all, remember that we want to remain on good terms with Japan. We want to remain on good terms with Korea. We like the Japanese and Koreans. We do business with them. By the way, we'd like to do business with China. We don't necessarily want to be involved in local disputes, though, mm -hmm. between these various countries. And keep in mind that Japan is enormously powerful, not just in an economic sense, but also militarily. Is it really? Yeah. We, the Japanese are poised right now, in our absence, to become infinitely more powerful mm -hmm. militarily. Uh, when, when it was brought up that uh, perhaps it was time for the Koreans, the Japanese, and others to consider some sort of nuclear arsenal, that sounded foolish to some people, but in truth, that's seriously under consideration and has been for a very long time in both Japan and Korea. Uh, they live next to China. They are concerned about neutralizing that Chinese arsenal. The best way to do it is to have a small arsenal of your own. And remember, China has relatively few warheads, 300, 400 warheads, mm -hmm as opposed to several thousand in Russia and several thousand in the United States. That's because the Chinese recognize that it's not how many warheads you have, but the reliability of your means of delivering them. Mm. And if you can deliver them, uh, that's usually enough to persuade people not to test you. And again, it's a matter of territorial integrity. So I, I think we, we have to accept the fact the world has changed. We don't necessarily have to pay for everyone's defense anymore. These countries are quite wealthy. They can afford to defend themselves. And by the way, we don't necessarily have to be the dominant power all the time everywhere. There are many, many disputes that can be resolved without our participation. In other words, let's put to bed this silly notion of being the indispensable power, the notion that we should be everywhere all the time, which leads you down the path of bankrupting military hegemony. We can't afford it, and we don't need it. So let me circle back around to a few things you've said and ask for a little bit more detail from you. Uh, you're critical of NATO. Would you then disband NATO? But you also point out that uh, you know some of these other countries that border 
Russia would best be served by having both a strong defensive capability and strong diplomatic engagement. What role, if any, would we play in that if we disbanded a NATO? Well, first of all, I don't think it's a question of disbanding NATO. I think it's more a question of making some uh, alterations to the alliance. First and foremost, we have had an American as the Supreme Commander Allied Powers Europe since Field Marshal Montgomery vacated that job. Uh, he, was, he was the last non-American uh, to be the Supreme Commander of Allied Powers Europe. At the same time, since we monopolized the military structure and the military command structure, uh, we, we saw to it that the Europeans on a rotational basis would provide the, the civilian leadership, if you will. But the reason we were always in charge had more to do with our nuclear power and, frankly, our overall military strength because, let's face it, after World War II, we were the last man standing. Everyone else was exhausted and in ruins. Mm -hmm. And you had millions of Soviet troops poised in, in Eastern Europe to pounce on Germany and Austria and Central Europe. Therefore, the assumption, not unreasonably, was that uh, we should be in charge. Well, those things changed in 1989 and 1990. And today's Russia, however potentially menacing it can be, is not in a position uh, similar to what it was in 1955 or 65 or 75. It's greatly weakened. So I think it's time for a European to occupy that post. Okay. And that would be the first step, is just to, to acknowledge, look, things have changed. Let's have a European Supreme Commander as opposed to an American one. And then we can move down to the deputy supreme commander's job, which has historically been British. Uh, that's the first step. And then to recognize that NATO itself is going to have to change because people's interests in various parts of Europe are not the same. If you are a Greek right now, or a Serb, or a Cypriot, you look upon Russia as a, a very valuable ally in the event of war with the Turks. And the Turks, who were once seen as this uh, Anatolian ally that was on the verge of becoming somewhat European and somewhat democratic, thanks to Ataturk, is no longer the secular state that it once was. We now have an Islamist party governing that country. Mr. Erdogan is working very hard to become the Turkish equivalent of Mr. Putin, essentially permanently right. installing himself in power. And he talks openly about a restoration of the Ottoman state and the Ottoman Empire. He even wants to bring back the Ottoman language and writing. Well, if you listen to what he says when he visits Vienna, where he tells the Turks in Vienna, thousands of them, you've accomplished more in 30 years than the Ottoman armies were able to accomplish in 300 by coming here, settling and breeding and taking over Europe. If he goes to Kosovo and says Kosovo is part of Turkey and Turkey is part of Kosovo, He's beginning to, to sound an awful lot like a very serious threat to Western Christian culture and civilization, by no means an ally. So I'm very sympathetic to the Greeks and the Turks <laughs> who see the Russians as potential allies in this. At the same time, the Ukrainians, who very much want to be independent of the, of the Russians and are desperate to do so, are actually doing business with the Turks, whom they see as potential allies in a future war with the Russians. Uh, these are dynamics over which we don't have much influence. But if you are the President of the United States, instead of trying to drag Ukraine into NATO, which I think is both unnecessary and ultimately antithetical to the interests of Ukrainians, it might make more sense to 
offer neutrality to Ukraine on the Austrian model and suggest that what Ukraine really needs under those circumstances is the opportunity to build its prosperity, to develop its economy, and it could do that in a neutral state. Would Mr. Putin accept Ukrainian neutrality on the Austrian model? I don't know, but it should be offered. And if Mr. Putin categorically rejects it, then I think Mr. Putin makes it unambiguously clear to everyone in Eastern Europe that he really is an existential threat and is determined to regain control of the countries that were once part of the Warsaw Pact. That might be useful, mm -hmm. but let's not, let's not exclude the possibility that Mr. Putin looks upon the neutrality opportunity as actually a good thing. Because remember, that would not prohibit the Ukrainians from trading at, as freely as they care to with Russia. And the Russians should want to trade with the Ukrainians. Ukrainians should want to trade with the Russians. Uh, again, it's, it's a different way to view the world. And this is something I talk about in my book, Margin of Victory. I talk about limited liability partnerships, mm -hmm. ultimately replacing alliances. The recognition that you want to trade with everyone. You really don't want to go to war with anyone. And to the extent that you're able, you want to have partnerships with people that allow you to trade and cooperate, and even cooperate militarily when it makes sense to do so. But on the other hand, it may not always make sense to cooperate militarily, because the interests that create conflict in one area may, may have no impact on us whatsoever. Uh, quick question on Russia, and then I want to switch uh, down, going down south towards Iran and ISIS and such. Um, Crimea. Speak to Russia's, uh, you know, taking the Crimea. Well, the Russians actually, I think, uh, made a, a huge mistake going into Crimea, but for reasons different from, from what Americans are normally told. Crimea contains over 200,000 Tartars who speak Turkish and are Muslims. Uh, the Tartars uh, were an independent force in Crimea. They were the offshoot of the Golden Horde. When the Golden Horde was destroyed for the next several hundred years, they were a tributary state of the Ottoman Empire. In other words, they owed their allegiance mm -hmm. to the Ottoman Sultan. Finally, in 1795, under Catherine the Great, uh, Cossack regiments and Russian regular forces finally overwhelmed and conquered Crimea and put an end to the Tartar threat to Russia. And the Russians have occupied the Crimea ever since. During World War II, uh, Stalin, with good reason by the way, feared that the Tartars would go over to the Wehrmacht, to the Germans. In fact, at least 600,000 Turks did. And so he deported large numbers of them to Central Asia. So Russia has a long and difficult history with the Tartars. By marching back in there, he's reawakened that sleeping dragon in many ways. And uh, Mr. Erdogan, is uh, very close to the Tartars and is doing everything he can, both in the Caucasus and in the Crimea, to inspire anti-Russian, anti-Christian sentiment, just as he's doing that in the Middle East. So the Crimea is, uh, is a place where I think Mr. Putin will ultimately regret going because whatever military value it has shrinks to insignificance because of the Dardanelles. You can't move anything out of the Black Sea unless you go through the Bosporus, which is controlled by the Turks. So what good is Crimea as a naval outpost? Not much. So I don't think he gained much by that, but he gained a great deal internally in terms of building himself up nationally. Now when you look at uh, Iran and ISIS, uh, 
there's something Americans don't seem to know much about. It, it, I almost get the impression that there is a deliberate effort on the mainstream media not to tell Americans the truth. And the truth is that this thing called the Islamic State would not exist today were it not for active support from the Turks, the Saudis, and the Qataris, and others in the Emirates. This cash flowed in from Saudi Arabia and Qatar to build up this Islamic State. At the same time, Turkish security intelligence officers went down there. They, they essentially collected the ruins of al-Qaeda in Iraq and then gave them the support and the direction and the intelligence to build the Islamic State. The idea behind the Islamic State was to wage war on the cheap against Iran. So the real enemy were the Shiites. But of course, when you create a Frankenstein's monster like this, it can move in any number of different directions. I think we are imputing too much to it in terms of its activities in the West. I think what you have are people returning from having been part of the Islamic State who are already full of hatred for Christians and Jews and are predisposed to take action. But it's not necessarily because there is a an orchestrating intelligence sitting inside the Islamic State plotting all over the world. I think people need to get over that. Uh, and if you control your borders and control immigration, I think you can control the Islamic State as far as Europe and the United States is concerned. But going into the region with 30 or 40,000 U.S. troops to annihilate ISIS won't work. It won't work because, frankly, most of the ISIS fighters will then melt into Saudi Arabia, Turkey, the Emirates, and vanish from the screen. Wait until you withdraw and come back, and they will continue to be supported because they have benefactors in the states that I mentioned. And some of these benefactors reach all the way to Pakistan. So this is a Sunni Islamist effort that is widely popular with key figures in the Sunni Islamic world. Uh, unless you want to go to war with everyone, uh, the probability of success against ISIS in the Middle East is low. The other part of this, though, is Iran. Well, let me, let me stop you there before we get into Iran. So are then you suggesting uh, if we just manage our borders, had better intelligence, you know, coordination between law enforcement, special operations, and such? Well, also immigration. You've got to manage immigration. Control, uh, that you then would oppose airstrikes and use sure. of special operations guys on the ground. Absolutely. I would pull everybody out because... Frankly, in our absence, if you stop interfering in this with U.S. military power, the focus will return exclusively to the Shiites, and they will wage war on Iran's satellite state in southern Iraq. They will wage war on Mr. Assad in Syria, and that's ultimately what they were created to do. Our intervention diverts their attention to us mm. and re reaffirms that we are this permanent enemy that they mm. must also attack. Do, have about uh, any empathy for like the various minority groups in, say, Syria, like the Yazidis, who are going to be targeted by ISIS for, Jesus, gen genocide? Well, any first of all, there is no future for Christians in the Middle East. Hmm. There just isn't. Now, fortunately, Mr. Sisi, or General Sisi, came to power in Egypt. If he had not, by now we would watch as Muslims were murdering millions of Christians in Egypt, I think. Really? Yes. I think the Muslim Brotherhood, which is the uh, gives the appearance of being uh, benign, is in fact as cancerous and dangerous as ever because 
Their goal is to take over democratically. The problem is in every Muslim country where Muslim parties win democratically, they never go away. Once they are in power, they never surrender power. Why should they? They have a monopoly on truth. They are righteous and just. It is their destiny to rule. People need to understand that. That's what's happened in Iran. That's why this Shiite uh, Islamist state in Iran has persisted into the present. Once in power, they don't leave. So the, my point is very simple. We're fortunate that Mr. Sisi is controlling events in Egypt because there are several million Coptic Christians who would otherwise be killed. We are fortunate that uh, we have a, a king in Jordan who has managed to hold Jordan together. Uh, and that's very important, by the way, to Israel's security because those are seen as insularity for Israel. And that's, again, we, we are doing what we can in those places. We should continue to do what we can to help support uh, those regimes to keep the Islamists out of power. But as far as the rest of the Arabian Peninsula is concerned, or North Africa, or the rest of the Middle East, <coughs> it is too tall an order to commit the United States Armed Forces to go in there and stop uh, this Islamist uh, revolution, which is really designed to destroy the Shiites and Iranian power, and secondarily, to go after what they view as corrupt leaders in the Sunni Islamist world. So, speak to Iran particularly, because you hear a lot amongst the talking head class here in the U.S., you know, when they start listening to the threats, that Iran is a threat to the United States. It doesn't sound like, from what I hear you saying, that Iran is a direct threat to us, although there might be a problem, not to us. Speak a little bit about what you think well, about Well, first Iran. of all, Iran is very different from the rest of the Middle East, and uh, frankly different from the rest of the is Islamic world. Uh, Iran is not moving as uh, Turkey is down this Islamist path. In fact, the mosques in Iran are largely empty. Even the Islamic police that is supposed to force people to go to the mosques in Iran has pretty much given up. The population is not, by any stretch of the imagination, enthusiastic about the Islamist leadership in its government or its overseas expeditions. The average Iranian could care less what happens much beyond the borders of Iran. This is a function of this ruling elite, their control of the country, uh, and we should not lose sight of that. Secondly, this nuclear agreement, however flawed people argue that it is, does appear to have worked remarkably well. All of the nuclear material is being largely shipped out. The Russians were certainly interested in, in preventing Iran from moving down the nuclear path. But at the same time, we also have to try and look at the world from the vantage point of the Iranian national. If you're an Iranian, you look to your east and you see Pakistan. The Pakistanis are Sunnis. They kill Shiites on a routine basis inside Pakistan and they present a real threat to Iran. Iran is very friendly with India, who is Pakistan's enemy. The Iranians look to the West, and they see Sunni Islamist states and, of course, nuclear-armed Israel, whom they regard as a threat. My own view is that in 10 years, Iran will be a useful strategic partner for Israel. But at the moment, there's an unwillingness to see it in those terms. Russia's view of Iran is also mixed, but the Iranians have kept their promise to the Russians, and they have prevented Islamists who are Shiites in the Caucasus from attacking the Russians. Hmm. So the Shiite populations in the Caucasus have remained 
uh, friendly to Russian power and influence, which is something that uh, Mr. Putin obviously is grateful for. And historically, the Russians and the Iranians, or uh, Russians and Persians, have cooperated against the Ottoman Turks. If we leave this alone and stay out of it, we will see these battle lines drawn up over the next few years, with Turkey leading the Sunni Islamist cause on one side, and the Shiites being led, obviously, by Tehran on the other. And there is a very good chance that they will collide in war, and the Russians may very well be drawn into that because of their concerns about the Sunni Islamist Turks in their own country and on their borders. Uh, but again, there is no reason why we should participate, and we should not necessarily see everything happening in Iran of a military nature is directed at us by any means. All right, so great overview of the globe and various um, interactions we've had over the, over the past in terms of alliances and such, and how we should rethink that in light of the 21st century versus the 20th century. Now let's let's talk about how, in fact, if that was all implemented, how that might affect the military and you know, the Pentagon in terms of its strategic thinking and spending. Uh, you know, we're in mm -hmm. the midst of the NDAA in the Senate um, this week, actually, and it's about six hundred billion dollars. That includes base budget and OCO, the Overseas Contingency Operations Fund. If you add in intelligence, which is about $80 billion, Department of Energy, Homeland Security, you're about a trillion dollars in national security, broadly speaking, spending. I, I would imagine if we followed, if the president followed your thinking in terms of disengaging at certain levels around the globe and engaging differently, um, that that spending could be reduced tr tremendously. Uh, there's no question about it, but keep in mind we're in an, in an election year. Mm -hmm. And you have enormous numbers of people from both parties uh, in the House and the Senate who, for different reasons, are rushing to get their share of tax dollars for the purpose of redistributing it to their constituents and campaign supporters. So that's, uh, that's just yeah. a fact of life. You're right, right. Even, you know, Senator McCain, if you brought him in here, would say the same thing. There are aspects of this budget that he doesn't like, but he cannot ultimately control the, the degree of, uh, let us say, feeding at the trough that goes on on the Hill. And then, of course, you have the appropriators who have the real power, because once the money reaches them, they can do almost anything they want with it. And so you have money going to various universities uh, for the purposes of conducting research on in all sorts of areas that, quite frankly, are not terribly relevant to us today, and in many cases will never produce anything of military value. But this goes on. Uh, you're not going to fix it this year. Mm -hmm. But what you can do in the future is that you can say, first of all, we don't necessarily have to be everywhere all the time. We don't necessarily have to be the dominant power mm -hmm. in all parts of the world. And again, I talk about this in my book, and I say global military hegemony is unaffordable. But regional military dominance, when you need it, is eminently affordable. We can do that. In other words, if you have to go into a particular region where you decide you have vital strategic interests at stake, whether that's Southeast Asia, Northeast Asia, the Caribbean Basin, uh, the Mediterranean, the Eastern Mediterranean, the Red Sea, you can do that. In other words, you can move forces into that region and you can exploit your, your overhead surveillance, your satellite arrays and communications and so forth. And you can bring in forces fairly rapidly. But to do all of that, you do have to engage in some reorganization and rethinking about how you do business. Because we're still living in this World War II structure that we've had since 1947. It's unwieldy. 
it's top heavy, and in many cases we've got the wrong equipment. And we don't necessarily need to replace it, we need new equipment that's different. And uh, part of our problem is we've got so much old equipment it becomes very expensive to maintain it. Mm -hmm. At some point it becomes cheaper to build new things. But you just don't build a new thing and put it in the old organization, you need old org new organizations. So to answer your question, could we spend less and get more? Yes. And I'm hopeful, depending upon who becomes president of the United States, that the next president will be interested in something that everybody in business understands. It's called return on investment, mm -hmm. ROI. We don't get a good return on our investment in defense. In fact, in the world, I think we are probably, of all the great powers, certainly the top 15, only Australia, I think, gets less for its investment from the military than we do. So we spend more than everyone else, but we don't get the maximum benefit from our tax dollars. Yeah, if I remember correctly, we spend 10 times more than, we spend more than the next 10 countries, six of which are our allies, if, I, if, if the numbers are correct. But if, you, if I were to take you to Sweden and look at their defense budget and look how they spend their money, they get much more for their money and than we do. That's the problem. Right. Uh, even Mr. Putin, who's got serious problems with corruption and, frankly, uh, irrationality industrially inside his country, if you look at what he's done with the army over the last 10 years, he's getting a lot more for his investment in the, in the Russian army than we are in the U.S. Army. But these, these things, again, have to be taken on by the next president. So I would say, first of all, re-examine your assumptions about the world. Mm -hmm recognize that sometimes we're going to have states that are threatening to our friends and potentially to us, but we don't have anybody anywhere who is always a threat all the time. And that's an important distinction because there's an attempt in this town to portray the entire world as potentially hostile to us. Nothing could be further from the truth. Secondly, usually doing nothing is the right thing as opposed to doing something. Uh, there's a phrase that I that I use in, in the book Margin of Victory, uh, and it's about the Japanese decision to invade China and to march into Shanghai and so forth, that there was a sort of overwhelming impulse to do something in Tokyo. There was no thinking about purpose, method, or end state. No questioning about, does it make sense? What do we want this to look like when it's over? What do we get out of it? How does this benefit us? Instead, there was just this impulse. We have the capability, let's use it. We've been doing a lot of that for the last 15 years. And a good example, of course, is Afghanistan, where we never had initially more than perhaps six or 700 serious opponents. And we could have practiced economy of enemies. Everyone with experience in the region said, if you're willing to do business with the Pashtun tribes, they'll sell you Osama bin Laden and his Arab friends because they're foreigners. But if you go into their region, they will fight you because you're there. <laughs> the British told us that. The Russians told us that. The Indians told us that. Even the Pakistanis privately told us that. We didn't listen. And we're still stuck in that place. And we're not accomplishing a damn thing. Certainly nothing that benefits the American taxpayer. We need to get out. And you have a similar situation today in the Middle East. We're all over the map. In... Syria, we're supporting strange groups of Sunni Islamist fighters because they're opposed to Assad. And down in Iraq, we're backing Shia Islamist fighters sponsored by Iran against Sunni Islamist fighters we say are the enemy. That makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. 
real question is, why are we there at all? What is at stake for us? What do we get out of it? And what makes us think we can shape the outcome? We haven't been able to shape the outcome in that part of the world for 15 years. And whenever we have invested heavily in the place, in terms of blood and treasure, we've gotten an outcome that was diametrically opposed to the one we wanted. We ran this surge, and our great achievement of the surge was to put Iran in power in Baghdad. So the issue at this point is, let's back out of these places, reassess what we're doing. Let's look at Europe, and let the Europeans decide, not us. It's not up to us to dismantle NATO. But we have to tell the Europeans, look, these are our interests. We love you. You are part of us. We are part of you. We want to see you succeed. But what is it that you want to do? And if you, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Poland, Germany, if you are concerned about the Russians, what are you prepared to do? How are you going to organize? How are you going to invest? I thought it was very interesting just recently that the Polish foreign minister at a public conference stood up and said, ladies and gentlemen, this is Mr. Sikorsky, I know this is going to sound very strange coming from a Polish foreign minister, but I have a question. Where is the German army? Without a German army, we have no chance of defending ourselves against Russia. Well, it's not entirely wrong. It's not entirely right. I think there's a great deal more than uh, he thinks is possible that can be done by the other states that are, including by the Poles. And I think he underrates the level of deterrence at the readiness of millions of Poles, just as millions of Ukrainians to fight the Russians really creates. But he's right. And the Germans need to make up their minds whether or not they're actually going to be Germans again and take their place with the rest of the European powers the way Bismarck did. Uh, not, not the Hitlerian version, but the Bismarckian version. And remember, Bismarck, while he was in power, once Germany was united, did everything he could to avoid conflict. But he used Germany's vast power, economic power and military power, to avoid conflict, to resolve disputes to create conditions that were conducive to stability and peace. So those are the things the president needs to talk about. The president has big problems, and he knows this, the next one, whoever it turns out to be, in the Caribbean basis and in Mexico with criminality. Mexico is a failed state. People that visit Cancun don't notice it because Cancun is heavily guarded because the cartels profit from Cancun. They're, part of, they're on the take, just like the government. But Mexico is not a modern nation-state in the sense of Europe or, or North America. It is not capable of exerting control over the, its own affairs. It is dominated by corruption and criminality. Uh, several of its cities are the murder capitals of the world right now. Uh, this is a very serious threat to us because it's spilling into the United States. It's not just the heroin epidemic. There's more to it than that. That's a serious area that has to be dealt with, and the only way to deal with it is to at least attempt to seal yourself off from the criminality. That's critical and essential, needs to be done. Uh, the Europeans, by the way, have a similar problem on their southern borders with this massive influx of Muslims. They're not just talking about terrorism. Terrorism is a problem. But these people are not coming to assimilate and become part of Europe. They're coming to benefit, to consume and to establish themselves inside other people's countries with the goal of eventually turning Europe into an Islamic state. That's a bad thing for the West. It's a bad thing for Europeans. 
we need to understand these things, so do they. We need to deal with those. Uh, and they, no one wants to deal with it. It's not something people want to do. I mean, we, we are not interested in that sort of thing. We think of ourselves as an advanced civilization that is beyond all of that. The problem is that the people south of us are not part of our civilization. Doug, you have a book coming out. It's called Margin of Victory, Five Battles That Changed the Face of Modern War. Uh, when is the book out? Well, the book's uh, officially available on 15 June. Very soon? Yeah. And where can the book be purchased? Everywhere books are sold, and of course on Amazon. Everything is on Amazon. <laughs> of course. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think people will like it. it it's, a, it's an examination of what worked and what did not work in the 20th century. And it, it looks at different battles fought by different peoples. There's a, a look at the Chinese, the Japanese, the British in World War I, the Israelis, the Egyptians in 1973. It looks at the United States and Iraq in 1991. The attempt is to try and get people to understand how people win and how they lose wars and all of the things that can be done well in advance of conflict that make a difference. There is a widespread myth that battles in, in major wars are won on the day of battle. That's not true. They're not won because of one general who has a brilliant idea. They're won over time by decisions that influence organization, technology, and human capital. And I mean human capital. I'm talking about the quality of the soldiers, the sergeants, the lieutenants, and captains. The organization, not just on the tactical level, but all the way to the top, from the strategic down to the bottom. And ultimately, uh, technology. The decision to invest in something that works versus the decision to invest in something that seems promising but may never work. And we've seen lots of that lately in the United States. Oh, definitely so. Um, well, congratulations on the soon-to-be-released book, Margin of Victory. Uh, I appreciate the copy I have right in front of me. Uh, I look forward to the read and love to have you back on to, to discuss the book in more detail. Hey, thanks for inviting me. Cool. Thanks, Colonel.